If you have your Bibles, and I'm guessing we probably will have the scripture up there, and you can turn to Revelation chapter 3, look at the Church of Philadelphia, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. In the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy that you have given us your word that we can read that we can learn from and be encouraged by and i just ask father that you would pierce our souls and draw us near to you i just pray that this passage um, that you've given us father that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear and that we would live for you and your glory. Please accomplish all that you plan to this morning. Please use me and be glorified. Give us ears to hear. In your name, amen. So um, I am so thankful um, that I had this passage um, to look at and study over this time because it was very timely for me. And I think it's probably going to be very timely for a lot of you this morning at a time when the world um, it seems so upside down, anxieties are high, and we just need encouragement. We need to know that God is in control. And that's what, what God has to tell us this morning. He says, no matter what life challenges are before us, no matter what we're going through, hold fast to the word of God. Don't deny the name of Jesus and he will give us perseverance to go through all the trials that we're going through. And one day, one day we'll be with God. We'll be wearing a crown and we'll be enjoying his presence forever. As I was putting this uh, uh, message together and meditating on God's word, I just kept getting this picture in my mind of a marathon race. And I kept picturing this long race and all the different runners. Uh, were, were running with torches in their hand. 
And in order to win this race, you, you don't, it, it is good to go fast and everything, but if you get to the end of the finish line and there was no flame still on your torch, you don't win. You don't win unless your torch is on fire and lit. And so I pictured all these different runners going, and then uh, whenever they started to get maybe to a hard spot, like you're going up the hill and your legs are feeling weak and, and your torches is going, but it's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep this lit. I pictured the runner, you probably laughed a little at this. I pictured the runner saying, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. And then don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. That's just my silly way. Of thinking, but I kept thinking about this, and every time the runner just started singing the song, that flame just stayed just roaring hot. The legs came back, and they were able to make it through all the different trials and the different parts of the race. I think that analogy, that illustration, is pretty accurate for this passage of scripture. But obviously, you're going to have to see that for yourself. If we use the illustration of the marathon race and we put it as the different churches are the runners in the race. It might appear that some of the other churches like Ephesus or Thyatira or uh, Laodicea might have stronger runners. Actually, I don't know about Ephesus might not look like the stronger runner. But one of those other some of those other churches, the the runner might have looked more robust, like, wow, they're gaining ground on Philadelphia and uh, Smyrna. But if you look more closely at those churches, as we've learned, they're they're light their fire and their torch might be a little bit flickering a little bit more, might not be burning as strong. They could pull past even these other churches. But all that matters is that the race is finished with that fire going. That's the word of God clinging to the word of God. God is the one that brings us through our race. This is a message that is a hopeful message for us. It's an encouraging message that we need to hear, that the Church of Philadelphia needed to hear. They needed to hear the promise that God was going to bring them to victory, that those that keep his word and don't deny his name were going to one day have a crown, that they're going to be able to make it through their trials and be with Jesus. So let's look at the struggles that the Church of Philadelphia experience and then let's see how god encouraged them to press on to the goal the church in philadelphia as most of us know means brotherly love um king atlas he was a king of pergamum at the time which was close to uh where philadelphia is philadelphia is in asia minor in the uh, western region landlocked and uh king atlas named it philadelphia because he loved his brother so it was in commemoration for him and uh, I guess we got it up there now. So you see where Philadelphia is. Philadelphia um, was also under Roman rule, um, just like the other churches. That's the government had the power over that region. And just like us, Philadelphia had a lot of earthquakes. They were situated among uh, volcanoes. And in fact, there was one earthquake that was so strong in AD 15, it just demolished all of Philadelphia. So in today's times, it takes a long time to rebuild after big earthquakes and stuff, but especially back then, it was economically devastating for them to go through that. And so um, supposedly there was also a lot of people that thought that uh, Rome should have contributed a little bit more to rebuilding of the city financially, and I guess they weren't 
On top of that, um, Caesar uh, was jealous of the fact that um, Philadelphia had uh, really good wine. He wanted Rome's wine to be the best wine, but Philadelphia had wine that was really good too. And so Caesar, being jealous, um, I guess ordered that a lot of their vineyards would be uprooted as well. So not only are these people losing their homes, they're, they're economically hurting from earthquake, they're also one of their main cash crops, the vineyards are being uprooted by the government. On top of that, they had the pressure, just like all the rest of the churches, of a lot of pagan um, temples all around them. They were living amongst of people that didn't believe in God. And there was ethnic Jews that were living around them that were probably pressuring them to say, you know, the reason why we're going through all this is because you guys worship Jesus. Jesus isn't the Messiah. You know, you need to come back to um, the faith um, that we believe. And so the people felt all these different pressures around them, economic pressure, spiritual pressures, all these different things. And Jesus tells the tells church in verse 8 that he knew that they had but little power. Okay, this isn't a little spiritual power. We know that their flame is burning bright because they've kept the word and they have not denied the name of Jesus. Verse 8, the Greek word that's used there encompasses a lack of will to win. They're running the race and their legs are hurting. They don't know how they're going to be able to continue running. We understand to a certain degree some of what they're talking about. We feel a lot of different pressures. There's all sorts of them. We, we just prayed for the people that, that need it because of their medical conditions. But I don't know about you, at least in the last few months, anytime I turn on the TV or the radio, my blood pressure goes up, my anxiety level goes up, and I think, how in the world are we ever going to be able to make it through any of this? Sometimes I just feel like there's just not a clear path to victory. I just want to know, God, what, what's what's around the direct corner? Is it going to be judgment on our nation? Are you going to bring about a revival and prosperity? Well, how how is abortion going to get overturned? I keep praying for it, God. How how is how are some of these things going to happen? And when we're going through these hard times and we're feeling these anxieties, we're weak, and that's when Satan wants to come and steal us. That's when he went to Jesus in the desert, and we're tempted. We're tempted to say, well, shoot, I've been praying some of these prayers for so long. I, I don't know. Is God hearing what I'm praying? Is, is, is he feeling it, what I'm going through right now? Is he going to be there for me? And we're tempted sometimes to go into sin. I know that I stress eat lots. <laughs> going on? I'm going and eating all this other stuff I shouldn't have. Um, but Jesus knows our pain. He knows the pressures that we're facing, and he knew the condition of the hearts of the people of the Church of Philadelphia. Jesus said in verse 8, I know that you have but little power, but you have kept my word and not denied my name. And Jesus told them earlier in our same passage that he knew their works. And then we also see at the beginning of uh, Revelation that Jesus walks among the lampstands which are the seven churches. Jesus knows intimately his people. That's how he knows how to address each of the churches. He knows at the beginning of his letters what they need to hear about him, who he is. 
He knows how he needs to get their attention. And this church in Philadelphia was not a church that God thought needed to be admonished. These were sinful people. They had sin in their lives, but they were holding fast to the word of God. They weren't denying the name of Jesus. And so God says, continue on, press on. Let me encourage you with reminding you who I am. Let me give you a little glimpse of some of the victory that you're going to have before you. Let me show you how I'm going to bring about some of this success. Let me remind you of what I've done in the past. Jesus begins this letter by reminding this weary church that he was the holy one, the true one. They had all of these different churches around him, all these different gods that weren't gods that were being worshipped. And Jesus says, I'm the holy one. I'm the only God. Trust me. I'm the true God. I will not lie to you. Just listen to me. And I hold the key of David. You may remember in Revelation 1.18, it says that he holds the key of hell. Now he says he holds the key of David. So we get a picture that Jesus is in control of everything. He's in control of hell. He's in control of heaven. When he says he uh, has the house of the key of David, He is referring to a quote that we see in Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22, which says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Such a clear picture. I mean, we're using the same words here in our passage of the Church of Philadelphia and in Isaiah 22. Eliakim was a high official with great power who served directly under the king, which in that time was King Hezekiah. And when it says that he had the key to the house of David, specifically what that means is he had the key to the treasury of Judah. At his right hand were the treasures of the people of God. And he had great power and influence to make decisions that controlled their government. And he spoke directly and was directly under the king. His name means God rising up. So what we have here with Eliakim is what we would call a type of Christ. Eliakim was a picture, as a foreshadow of who Jesus is and his position. So God is telling this weary church, the church of Philadelphia that is hurting with all of these different pressures going on, like, I'm here for you. I'm the Holy One. I am the true God. I hold the key to everything. I hold the key to all the riches. I am in control of the government that is over you. Trust me. I am here for you. He tells us the same thing today. It doesn't matter if it's Biden or Trump that's over us. It doesn't matter if China takes over America. He is in control and he is working things for our good and for his glory. Jesus tells him, he says, He alone chooses to open doors and to shut doors. 
And if God shuts the door, no one else can open it. And if he opens it, no one else can close it. And he says, because the church of Philadelphia didn't deny his name, God told him that he gave them an open door. What does that mean? We get an indicator of what Jesus meant when he said that he gave uh, Philadelphia church, uh, the Philadelphia church an open door in verse 9. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. So he tells them that he gives them an open door. And then he says, I'm going to make these Jews. that say they're Jews, but they're not. What? What? This is Romans chapter 2. This is Romans chapter 11. These are ethnic Jews that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says, if you're mine, if you're my sheep, if you're really one of my people, then you are the real Jews. You're the Israelites. So he's saying these people, just as it says in 1 John, that anyone that does not profess that Jesus is Lord is an antichrist. They're of Satan. So he calls these Jews the synagogue of Satan. That they're of the synagogue of Satan. And he tells them, I've given you an open door. They're going to come before you and they're going to bow before you. Now, if we read that real quickly, we're like, what? We see clearly there's a victory, right? The enemy, those that are giving them pressure, those that are saying things to them are going to come before them and bow before them. But we could be, we know that only God is supposed to get glory. So what is going on here? Well, the key is at the end of those verses where it says, they will come and bow before you and they will learn that I have loved you. That's the goal. She's saying, I've given you an open door. Because you've stayed true to my word, because you haven't denied my name. And those people that don't know me are going to come down and bow and acknowledge that I am God. I'm going to save them. The key is that Jesus opened a door so that the ethnic Jews would see Jesus' love for his church in Philadelphia. This is so powerful. This imagery here is the same thing, same imagery that we get with the rebuilding of the temple of Jerusalem after it was destroyed in 586, 587 B.C. I want to take you to Isaiah 45. We're going to look at verse 14. We're going to read verse 14. Then I'm going to turn around and read the first part of Isaiah 45. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. This should make, <laughs> this should make our skin tingle and our socks go up and down. This is amazing. This is this is a bunch of people that are pagans that God is saying some 150 years before it actually took place. In Isaiah, Isaiah, God speaking to Isaiah. Isaiah is writing it down some 150 years before it happened. He's saying there's going to be destruction of the temple and I'm going to have other people that don't know me come and help you and bow down before you. And they are going to declare that I am God. 
It gets so good. Like, I am so excited about this passage. Listen to the beginning of Isaiah 45 and see all the parallels over and over again through this. 13 verses. We're going to look at them. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, he named him 150 years before, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That my people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, and that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open. The salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I the Lord have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it? What are you making? It's Romans 9. Or, or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to the father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Though, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The one who formed him, ask me of these things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. <laughs> 150 years before. We're not just talking vague statements. We're talking Cyrus. He named Cyrus. Maybe it's so exciting to even just think and review for a second. We already mentioned Second Chronicles, if my people. Well, God was holding out his arms to his people and he's saying, repent, come back to me, follow me. But Israel, the, the people of God kept refusing to obey God, and God said, fine, I'll raise up the Babylonian Empire, people that are pagan, and they're going to come, and they did, and they came and destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the wall, they tore down the whole city, and they destroyed the temple of God and carried God's people off into exile. We think of Daniel. And you got to be thinking about those families while all that was going. All hope. Maybe lost. Family members dead, families torn apart, the temple destroyed. How in the world is God ever going to bring us out of this situation? How? God, we trusted in you. Some of them probably said he must not have been God. Other ones of them must have been saying, God, I, I know that you're God. and I'm sorry that, that, that we've sinned, but I don't see any hope. How in the world are you going to change this for our good? Well, we have Ezra chapter 1. 
And God rose up the Persian Empire. And there was King Cyrus of Persia who did not know God, which was made clear in Isaiah 45. And God moved in his heart to make a decree. And the decree said, all the Israelites who are in exile can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. Not only did he say that, but he said they can go back with riches. And he said those that aren't going back to help them should provide for them all the things that they need. And not only that, but there were other people that were not Israelites that were also commanded to go and help and rebuild the temple. And he provided for them. And they came and bowed their knee. And it says that even King Cyrus said their God must be God. Just at a time when he thought there was no hope. That was about 70 years later. So some of them were there to see the destruction and the rebuilding. That is what God means by open door. That is our God in control of everything. This was the idea behind God's promise to the church in Philadelphia. He encouraged them to continue to trust him and hold fast to his word because he was going to cause the people around them who weren't his people to see his love for them. No situation is too hopeless for God. Nothing. Nothing. Only be faithful, especially through the hard times, because God may have an open door before you. He goes on to tell the church in Philadelphia, verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. God tells him, I am going to be with you through trials. I am not going to leave you or forsake you. The word that is being used here is a Greek word, ter eo ek. I will keep you from the hour of trials. The same word that's used in John 17, 15 in Jesus' priestly prayer, where he's talking about and he's asking God to keep the disciples, where he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is telling them, Remember me. I'm the holy one, the true one. I have the key and I'm in control of everything. And I am going to bring you through the hard times. Your legs are weak in this race. I'm going to keep your torch going. Only hold fast to my word and I'll bring you through it. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And not only can he bring us through the troubles that we have, but we think of places we just went through the book of James. And James chapter one says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you're faced with trials of various kinds. Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance ultimately salvation. Supernatural. God gives us joy. There's a man that has pain all the time, and he, he has joy all the time. I see it. He always encourages me. I want to read a super powerful. I, I almost, because of time, I almost cut this story out, but this story is so powerful. It's three pages long, but you'll understand why. And it cut it out, and you'll be thankful that I did. When I get done with it, I'll probably cry while I'm reading it because I always do. Every time I practice this, I did. I got I to gotta drink this. This is about a man named Dimitri who had a house church during the rule of 
um, the Soviet Union. And I can't remember if he was in Russia at the time or if it was Romania. Listen to this. The authorities moved Dmitry a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in a prison. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, it took but a single step either to get to the door of his cell, to reach the stained and cracked sink mounted on the opposite wall, or to use the foul open toilet in the far corner of the cell. Even worse, according to Dmitry, he was the only believer among 1,500 hardened criminals. He said that his isolation from the body of Christ was more difficult than even the physical torture. And there was much of that. Still, his tormentors were unable to break him. Dimitri pointed to two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. There were two spiritual habits that he had learned from his father, disciplines that Dimitri had taken with him into prison. Without these two disciplines, Dimitri insisted his father would have not survived. His faith would not have survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed, as was his custom. He would face the east, raise his arms to praise God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protests. They threw food and sometimes human waste to try to shut him up and extinguish the only true light shining in that dark place every morning at dawn. There was another discipline, too, another custom, custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap of paper in prison, he would sneak to the back of his cell. Then he would pull out a snub of a pencil or a tiny piece of charcoal that he had saved, and he would write on that scrap of paper, a tiny, as tiny as he could, all the Bible verses and scripture stories or songs that he could remember. When the scrap was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of his little jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water except in the wintertime when the moisture became a solid coat of ice on that inside surface of his cell. Dimitri would take the paper fragment, reach as highly as possibly he could, and stick it on the damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Of course, whenever one of the Jailer spotted a piece of paper on the pillar. He would come into a cell, take it down, read it, beat Dimitri severely, and threaten him with death. Still, Dimitri refused to stop his two disciplines. Every time he rose at dawn to sing a song, his song, and every time he found a scrap of paper, he filled it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year. His guards tried to make him stop. The authorities did the unspeakable things to us, did unspeakable things to his family. At one point, they even led him to believe that his wife had been murdered and that his children had been taken by the state. They taunted him cruelly. We've ruined your home. Your family is gone. Dimitri's resolve finally broke. He told God that he couldn't take it anymore. He admitted to his guards, you win. I will sign my confession that you want me to sign. I just must get out of here to find out where my children are. Then Dimitri, then they told Dimitri, 
will prepare your confession tonight, and then you will sign it tomorrow. Then you will go free. After all those years, the only thing that he had to do was sign his name on a document saying that he was not a believer in Jesus and that he was a paid agent of Western governments trying to destroy the USSR. Once he put his signature on the dotted line, he would be free to go. Dimitri repeated his intention. Bring it tomorrow, I'll sign it. That very night, he sat on his jail cell bed. He was in deep despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. At that same moment, a thousand kilometers away, his family, Dimitri's wife, his children who were growing up without him, and his brother sensed through the Holy Spirit the despair of this man in prison. His loved ones gathered around the very place where I was sitting as Dimitri told me his story. They knelt in a circle and they began to pray out loud for him. Miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dimitri to hear the voices of his loved ones as they prayed. The next morning, when the guards marched into a cell with the documents, Dimitri's back was straight and his shoulders squared. And there was strength in his face and in his eyes. He looked at his captors and declared, I'm not going to sign anything. The guards were in- incredulous. They had thought that he was beaten and destroyed. What happened? They demanded to know. Dimitri smiled and told them, in the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. I know now that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her. I also know that there are still in, they are still in Christ. So I am not signing anything. His persecutors continue to discourage and silence him. Dimitri remained faithful. He was overwhelmed one day by a special gift from God's hand. In the prison yard, he found a whole sheet of paper. And God, Dimitri said, had laid a pencil by it. <laughs> Dimitri went on. I rushed back to my jail cell and I wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story, every song I could recall. I knew that it was probably foolish, Dimitri told me, but I couldn't help myself. I filled both sides of the paper with much of the Bible, as much of the Bible as I could. I reached up and I stuck the entire sheet of paper on a wet concrete pillar. Then I stood and I looked at it. To me, it seemed like the greatest offering I could give Jesus for my prison cell. Of course, my jailer saw it. I was beaten and punished. I was threatened with execution. Dimitri was dragged from his cell. As he was dragged down the corridor to the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the uh, the courtyard, before stepping out into the place of of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. They faced the east and began to sing. (laughs) Dimitri told me, That it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all human history. 1,500 criminals raised their arms and they began to sing the heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all of those years. 
Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold of his arms and stepped away in terror. One of them demanded to know, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and as proud as he could. He responded, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. A short time later, he was released from prison and got to go home and be with his family. Just when he thought he could not finish the race, his knees weak, Jesus miraculously, through the Holy Spirit, used his family, spoke to his family, And he could hear them as they were praying. And he was given strength. Just at a moment when he thought there was no hope. And ironically, the word of God is what he clung to. And he took the word of God as a worship offering and he posted it. On a pillar. And that's what gave him strength. To go through everything. And in our passage. Says in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers. I will make him a. Pillar. In the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I don't know if Dimitri's still alive. If he's not, he's a pillar. The pillar that held up the word of God to give him strength while he was here on earth was the word of God and in the word of God made him into a pillar in the temple of our God. And we are too. And we'll have his name written on us one day. No matter how impossible things may seem, no matter what the trial, Jesus sustains his people. He's the one that gives us perseverance to withstand all the trials. One of the most glorious moments in history was when our Savior endured the most significant persecution. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross for our sins so that we would be forgiven and one day be with him in heaven. It's a perfect time for communion. Come up.